Welcome to Fandom Media. And that is who we are, not the MMC. Listening to this podcast will not grind you into fine earth or dust, but it is highly recommended, especially if you are a fan of The Expanse, which we certainly are. Yeah, we're really big fans. We've read all six of the books, all of the novellas, the short stories. We just love it. And because of that, it would be really hard for us to cover the show and do it justice without actually crossing those cannons. Yeah, it's pretty hard to keep those things straight. When you've read something uh, thoroughly and you're watching it on TV, you can't not think about what you've read already. It's pretty hard to separate the two. And we've taken a look around and found that there aren't a lot of people doing that. As far as covering The Expanse, there's some things out there. There's some good shows with even some featuring some of the actors and the creators, which is great. Yeah, of course, there's Sci-Fi Wire and Ars Technica, which has Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank and some of the actors on it. There's coverage like After Buzz TV, which has the actors as well. There's lots covering it, which is great for us. We love it. But we definitely felt that there was a little bit of a niche that we could fill here. That's right. That's what we kind of do in general or what we're setting out to do in general, covering topics other shows aren't. Or when they are covering them, we'll cover them in different ways. And since this was a double episode debut, there is a lot to cover. So let's just get into it. Meta elements. First of all, the titles were pretty significant. Going into it, we'd seen what the titles were, and safe seemed pretty clear. I didn't even consider that, of course, it was the safe containing the proto-molecule. That's right. This is one of the first things we start off with, is uh, Amos working on that problem. And for episode two, it's entitled Doors and Corners, which is a reference from the books as well as from Miller's time in Star Helix, something, uh, a piece of hard-earned wisdom about, you know, that's where you get shot, coming around doors and corners. That's where the danger always lies, and he gets to throw that line out there at Foster. Of course, he goes right backwards through a door right after he says it. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, of course, that which which I think is uh, part of his character, which is that he doesn't really care what happens to him. He's not exactly a guy that has a lot of value uh, attached to his own life at this point. A little bit of news before we get too much into the nitty gritty. There's a new comic series out, The Expanse Origins. Uh, Part one's out so far. It covers Holden's backstory. And there are installments coming out for Naomi, Alex, and Amos. Next is Naomi. Now, how do these compare to the short story novellas that were written for The Expanse novels? There's The Churn and Drive and three others. Are these sort of along the same lines or... Seems like it's a little bit shorter even because it's a comic. It's maybe 30 pages only of comic pages. I'm particularly excited for the Naomi one, though, because I think there's some good backstory that we haven't seen with her and Marco Inaros. Well, yeah, everybody definitely check those out if you're fans of the books and or show. Filling out some of the backstory is always fun. Another PSA for everyone is that depending on how you watched it, you may have missed a scene. There's a slight difference in the TV airing and the digital copies on sci-fi.com, Amazon, Google Play, which is that the scene with Avsarala and Kotyar, which is the spy that she hires, is just missing from the airing uh, for no explanation. There's a few other differences that aren't really very important, things like missiles being animated slightly faster, things like a short opening credits, but a whole scene missing is pretty weird. Any case, yeah, make sure you all see that scene, folks. If you didn't um, see it, it certainly seems like it would be confusing to have that scene missing. Yeah, you'd be like, who is this new character? Yeah, who is this spy guy? Yeah, exactly. 
There's a new director to the show this season, Breck Eisner, but he did both of the first episodes here. We haven't seen the director credits for the rest of the season, so we don't know if he's done any more episodes of the season, but it seems possible, so given he's already done two. The writers for episode one are Mark Fergus and Hawk Ostby. What a great name. Hawk Ostby. Yeah, that is a great name. <laughs> yeah, and they wrote episode one, and episode two is written by Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank themselves, which really shows just how much involvement they have. And they not only write episodes, but... They're involved in the writing for every episode. That makes this show unique in a sense, especially compared to other adaptations. Of course, we're very familiar with Game of Thrones, and we know that George R. R. Martin, the author, has limited involvement with the show. Early on, he wrote one episode per season, but even that fell off eventually because he needed to take more time to do work on the books. In this case, though, like you said, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham were deeply involved in the show. And in some cases, that sets a kind of new paradigm. A lot of times when people look at changes that a show has made from a book, there are complaints that they adapted it differently. In this case, we see some of the same things, except those changes were made by the original authors. Thus, it's them kind of deciding that they, they wish they could have done it a little better. It's like they get a second chance... And most of the stuff they keep because it was really good. But they have the chance to make a few changes. And to just add things that they know better with hindsight. Okay. We'll get into them because there's a lot of really great examples of foreshadowing that they added to this early in the series that really wasn't visible at all until Nemesis Games. Whenever they make a change, it really never feels like a divergence to me. It just feels like it's expanding on a character and giving us a slightly alternate view of them. And sometimes it's just expanding on what they were doing when they were off screen. I think it's important to note, really, uh, as well, because if you don't know that it's the original authors making these changes, it might feel irritating. You're like, why did they change that from the book? Why are these new writers making changes like that? Well, they're not. This is These are the original guys. So that's really neat. I can't count the number of times I've seen a Reddit thread with someone complaining about it, and then the actual authors come in and say, well, we were involved in those changes. <laughs> Owned. <laughs> Fandomedia.reviews. Speaking of their involvement. We paid close attention to their Twitter feeds during the off-season when they were talking quite a lot about the challenge of casting Bobby Draper. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine how hard that is to cast? You have to cast someone that's six feet tall plus, is Polynesian, and is badass looking. Let alone can act. Yes, let alone can act, <laughs> and she's also gorgeous. Yeah, and they, when they found her, when they cast her, they said, well, we found our unicorn. That's yeah. a, if, if you don't get the reference, a unicorn is anytime you are looking for something that you don't think can be found. You, you know, it's a common, common enough trope to call that a unicorn. They didn't think they could find someone that had all these traits that we just described. But hey, they did so far. I'd have to agree. Her debut was fantastic. It's really good. And of course, we didn't get a whole lot of chance to see more elements to her acting. We mostly saw her as a badass, but we still did see a little bit of her wistfulness there. And I thought she did a great job. Yeah, looking forward to more. We also, of course, meet her troupe, which I thought this was one of the best improvements the show's had, actually, is fleshing out this troupe so that I really cared about them and liked them. As is probably going to happen, as it did in the books, they're probably not long for this world. So it's, certainly they're setting us up to be sad here. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to work. Yeah. 
A little thing about all the actors in this troupe is that they're all known for genre TV. Kind of makes sense. Genre TV tends to just be a little more open-minded to casting like people of color and women and good roles. But for instance, Hillman, who's the blonde woman, actually was a man in the books, a little bit of a difference. She was in Being Human. Well, Hill Man. Yeah, I Hill mean, Man. How can they make her a woman? <laughs> <laughs> it's not Hill Woman. <laughs> And then Saeed, who is the deadpan guy who messes with Bobby a bit and was really, really hilarious. Yeah. He's played by Duchesne Williams of Defiance. That's cool. And the other member of her troupe, Travis, is the Earther who moved to Mars at five, and he was in Falling Skies. His name is really hard looking to say. We're not even going to try. Narrative. So shout out to The Expanse authors for being very open and communicative about the process and making the show. And a shout out to the Reddit community for, as usual, helping us find a few bits of hidden information that help round out the story of the creation of this episode and all the fun that comes with it. One of the main themes we noticed was people making assumptions or being wrong about what the other side is doing. This has been a common theme throughout season one as well, but it really comes to a head here in a tense military situation where both Earth and Mars are making nearly identical but wrong predictions about each other. Like, both are thinking how the other wants something on Phoebe. They must be something there they want. You know, they're talking about how it's a backwards research station, yet they're so intent on going there. Both sides make the same case to the other. And of course, having information delay plays into this in a huge way. That's right. The paranoia of not being having up to the minute information really adds to the tension both for the characters and the way they explain it makes it that translate well to the audience as well. One thing I heard in one of the podcasts I listened to that was really great was that one of the things that the writers liked so much about this show was that there's information delay, which helps a lot with suspense. Whereas one of the main issues with movies and TV shows today is that they have cell phones. They can just instantly communicate with each other and that means that they have to explain why they're not doing that whereas right here they have a 40 minute delay to one another or 16 minutes or whatever it is 20 i think yeah it depends from earth tomorrow oh yeah it depends on where they are yeah the 20 minute delay is what they were working with in this particular scene but you're right it changes based on where they are and how far they are from each other given the length of the solar system that can vary pretty greatly. Now this whole confusion about what everyone else thinks and what everyone else's intentions are plays out on a smaller scale too with these characters like Miller never actually meeting Julie. And And Naomi not realizing that. She thought that if you remember in season one she even has a line where she says that Julie must have meant a lot to him. And she did. (laughs) He did, but not in the traditional sense. And how about Fred Johnson just getting all kinds of information that makes his jaw drop? He can't even process it. He's just being told all these things all at once. First, he's like, we were on Eros. Before he can process that, they're dropping this, oh, by the way, extraterrestrial life form. Extra solar. Extra solar life form, right. Not extraterrestrial, extra solar life form. And he's, he can't even process that before the next... Before he's called a chair jockey, OPA chair jockey by Miller, <laughs> one of my favorite lines. Uh. And of course, Miller doesn't know who the heck Johnson is either. <laughs> so that was just great. Nobody knows who anybody is. And then Naomi basically just kind of lays it out like, look, buddy, <laughs> here's, a, here's everything. And it's just great. Of course, the episode starts out with Mars, but it starts out for the Rocinante crew with Holden's bad dream. It very much felt like something from Alien. I think, yeah, I think a lot of people pointed that out as well. Yeah, I, I, almost certainly on purpose because it was so widely received uh, that way. And it was an actual alien 
<laughs> a couple of uh, sneaky lines that might come up later that, that are worth considering and thinking about as yeah. potential foreshadowing. Yeah, like, uh, for instance, one thing that made me take note for just a moment was Holden said that he had swimmers on ice in the Navy, and I just suddenly realized that Earth is fucking wrecked. Yeah, if you've, yeah, in the books, Earth gets just not destroyed, but It's possible horribly... that his, his swimmers are still out there, but yeah. it's possible they're gone and Holden can never have kids now. Yeah, but he can still have coffee from that famous <laughs> coffee machine that Miller refers to that they keep talking about. And I can appreciate that. If you can't have babies, some good coffee is a uh, nice um, booby prize. <laughs> Yeah. Silver lining. <laughs> Holden actually had a lot of humorous scenes, I think, in both of these episodes. When you think about it, things like when they're going into battle and he forgets to stow his stuff, which was, cracked me up because as soon as he let it fly, I was, I was like, What's uh, he on doing? edge. Yeah, I was, was like, wait. <laughs> I couldn't believe he was doing it. And then, of course, there's the whole cheese story lasagna scene and the that teddy detector stuff. Yeah. Holden was so amused. Stephen Strait has an amazing, warm, happy face. Like, he does. He's like he. I met. Yeah, you can see why they picked that actor. I'm sure that uh, he melted some hearts uh, <laughs> along the way. Huh. <laughs> uh, Miller, on the other hand, does not melt many hearts. <laughs> no, he hardens them, <laughs> including his own. But this, but it did. Despite that, there was, like we just said, there was some really good comic relief. There, were, the show, it was incredibly tense, lots of action, lots of drama. But the comic relief w was very well placed and done very well. I think the other best, the other great example was Alex, where they did the double fake out. He's sitting there talking about how guilty he is. And you know because the camera focuses only on him. You know Amos is leaving. That's the old trick they do. That's really done really often in comedies. But then they take it one step further. And not, he's not just gone. He's replaced himself with someone else that he's paying yeah, to be there. And That's he had a whole conversation with to get them to do this. <laughs> yeah, so that was great. <laughs> it was great. And it was also a very moving scene, honestly. And it made me think a lot about how wrapped with guilt you would be at the thought like he didn't try none of them really tried at all as the belter says to him did you even try but it's true and amos does have a point though he's like we probably would have died if we had tried and, yeah. and alex says well we should have tried it's like no we would have died and That's... then no one would know about the proto molecule and it would everyone would be even more screwed and that is the that kind of conundrum is avarasala's whole existence is having to sacrifice things she loves or you know burning bridges with her some of her best friends like she did with the mars ambassador in season one she does it without hesitation because she's very focused on the greater good and she's it seems like she's been right so far she lied to the council about knowing this particular captain. Yeah, and it was a good play. It, it worked was, out for her. It I, worked out great. I'm pretty sure that if she hadn't made that lie and Admiral Souther hadn't known that that was a lie, she probably wouldn't have gotten that information about Fred Johnson from him because he has the slight inkling that she has Earth's best interests in mind, that she's trying for peace. She was trying to stall this war. And I think that's part of why Katyar was willing to work for her, even though he's, you know, even though it's dangerous. But that's why it's in that scene, it's pointed out that he's kind of a rob the rich 
give to the poor kind of guy, a, a Robin Hood character, which means that if he believes her that she is working for the greater good, then that would that would buy him in as far as his sensibilities and what matters to him, uh, regardless of the danger. He would care about the you know the ethics of of what she's doing. I think the Avicerala scenes are really great and full of a lot of acting depth because she has to keep Aaron Wright thinking that she knows nothing while also not being completely useless. And that shows on her face. Yeah, she talks about how she knows she's being set up. She tells that to Katyar that she knows she's being set up. And as soon as her investigation fails, they're going to use that as an excuse to get rid of her, saying, look, you couldn't do this. Maybe they even have the information they can show her incompetence look we found we figured it out you know <laughs> they can control the flow of information on the one i don't know it's not important to know exactly what they would have done the point is that aversarala is right as she usually is <laughs> <laughs> and she explains it very well and it does work out well for her that admiral souther is the one who knows her lie and not someone that's working against her because souther obviously is on her side as far as it goes in terms of wanting to keep peace. He is clearly peace first. He, from his perspective, he can't tell if that's exactly where she is, but he's not convinced either way, so he works with her a little bit. Yeah, but he still thinks she's awful for <laughs> even entertaining these ideas. Yeah, one of the worst people ever, but she sets him straight. It's a great conversation. She explains to him, he says, look, how much do you really think you can do more good sidelining yourself like that? She says, grow some balls and realize that you know, this goes beyond your your ego and your honor. Like, is that that's what really what you're doing here, man? She's saying you're just don't want to get your hands dirty. You don't want to be blamed for this atrocity. Well, this atrocity, if that's what it is, it's going to happen with or without you. If you're part of this decision making process, you can make it less of an atrocity, or perhaps avoid it being an atrocity at all. So I, I I see her point there. I think that was really strong. I do think it was kind of weak for him to resign. I can understand the moral stance, but at the same time. He's a fleet commander. What did he think was going to happen? You know, this is these kind of situations are going to come up. Yeah, I wonder how long he's been in that position, really. Aaron Wright made it sound like he had no battle. Remember, he 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 cut him down with the "What font of battlefield wisdom are you drawing from?" Oh yes, is, yes. I, and that was because you know, obviously, Aaron Wright had his own uh, agenda there. Of course. And uh, so he was willing to play dirty. Yeah, he was so obvious. Like it looked like everyone could tell that he was. On edge there. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think that was a pretty good job by the actor there showing the tension, but also making strong points. You know, he was on the offensive in that meeting, but he had good points to make. He, had, he made logical, perhaps there were flaws in his logic, but they were, on the surface, they seemed logical, especially in such a paranoid, tense environment where you don't have time to think every little thing through all the way through. It's actually a really interesting example of the show's casting as he's one of the only examples where they whitewashed a character, but I think they do it very pointedly because, I mean, he's bad. He has to be a white man, <laughs> obviously, but in the books, he's a dark-skinned man with a soft, round face, which is pretty different from the, the Sadavir Aaron Wright that we get in the show. More than it's like at least two-thirds of the characters have at least a, a, a noticeable difference from their book version, mostly in ways that aren't particularly significant. Yeah. But this one, when you change the race of a character, it's maybe there's more to it than just, we like this actor better. Mainly because the writers have put such an emphasis on maintaining the race of the characters that they wrote. Right. And another character who's seen in the war room there is Admiral Wynne, who is taking who takes over for Admiral Souther. And Admiral Wynne is in the books. He has a major role. He is in the Ganymede incident. 
mm-hmm. and he becomes a very bad person. <laughs> he is, his true character is revealed to be not mm-hmm. such a good person. <laughs> and that's another thing that's going to come make Avrasorella's point come out even stronger, that they were, they were all better off with Souther in, in charge and not this Wynn guy, as we're going to see. Yeah. Probably. Assuming the, the show goes similar to the books that way. It seems like it, given that we've shown him and seen him be put in that position. But the other person that is related to this whole conspiracy going on is Jules Pierre Mao, of course. Yes. And the scene with him really is very poignant because... It's got several subtle clues, it's got some double meanings, and it really hammers home who's in charge. Aaron Wright, I mean, the way Jules talks to Aaron Wright is very clear who the boss is in this relationship. Oh, yeah. And if it wasn't already clear, they made it very clear. I love how he says that Julie's sacrifice was worth it and that she's a part of it all. Uh It's like, yeah, he doesn't know how right he is. She is literally a part of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's good for humanity that she's a part of it because her person, the remnants of her personality is what Miller later engages with to keep her from destroying Earth entirely. Yeah. And we're going to get into Miller right (laughs) after this. But before we move on, we have a few things about Jules. I think my favorite line in the entire episode was when he says, you're witnessing a discovery that could rewrite the story of humankind, but your imagination takes you as far as putting the boot heel to your former colony. Yeah. And I just thought that that was a beautiful line and really relevant to the series as a whole. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. Jules doesn't know the half of it, and he's at the top. (laughs) He hasn't read the next few books. (laughs) Someone who has read the books, interestingly enough, is Thomas Jane himself, Joe Miller, which is really interesting. It's I always think it's great when an actor reads the books regarding uh, relating to their character because in in any book situation, you get especially when that book features point of view from that character, you get really deep into what the authors had in mind for that character's state of mind and point of view. And it goes to show that Thomas Jane has been setting this character up for a long time with the way he behaves, with his kind of downtrodden, you know, I don't really care. I've got, I'm on this mission, but, uh, you know, this kind of, it's an odd combination of being defeated yet being intense and focused at the same time. Like he's... It's a good description. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it's kind of an odd dichotomy. As he says to... Naomi, that he feels like she's a part of him. That's the same kind of foreshadowing that Jules Pierre Mao unintentionally gave. Exactly, exactly. Uh, see, this is what we talk. This is what we mean when we say it's impossible to separate the books from the show. When you've read the books, we, those, those things. Nobody in the show is gonna. No show watcher is gonna catch those things unless they rewatch it after those things were revealed. Yeah, and then they go, "Oh, that's look at that sneaky thing." Yeah, we can't not notice that now. Yeah. Whereas a book reader, yeah, they they watch the show and they hear "You belong with me" and they're like, "Oh yes, you do, Miller. <laughs> you do." Uh, I'm yeah, really excited. Shipping to see- Miller and the pl- Proto Molecule. <laughs> I'm really excited to see the hallucinations of Julie Mao this season, for one, because I'm excited to see more of that actress. And I'm also excited to see, in the future, the hallucinations of, you know, Miller. Yeah, that'll be neat. I wonder how they're going to do that Hallucinations. Visually. I don't know. Yeah, they won't I, be hallucinations, will they? That wouldn't be the right word. Not the right word. They're <laughs> really a real occurrence. They're just sinations. <laughs> There's no halu in there. <laughs> Another line that stood out to me was when Miller was talking about Amos killing Sematimba, and he says, you just killed him like a street rat, and rang some bells for me that Miller and Sematimba were as good as street rats. That's basically how they described themselves growing up, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it made it 
oh, it's just so tragic. I felt so bad for him just thinking that his life and his friend's life were kind of worthless to these people and how he just feels so devalued, I think. Yeah, and I think that it's really, this one of my favorite parts of the two episodes was this, the way they handled the conflict between Amos and Miller and the way it was resolved. Both of those things I thought were really, really well done, both the way they were written and all three of the major actors that pulled them off. Obviously, other people were involved, but it was mostly Miller, Amos, and then Naomi. Yes, and Amos is, I mean, Wes is just such a good actor. He really embodies Amos in a way that maybe didn't expect because he's very different from how the character is described in the books. I mean, obviously, all the, all the actors are much more attractive than the book characters. Standard. <laughs> but he's still a lot younger than Amos is in, yes. in the books. And he just seems more vulnerable to me in the show. And part of that is seeing his acting. But like when he walks away kind of stiffly with Naomi after and just offers up his explanation, I told him to stand down. Yeah, he knows it's a weak explanation. Yeah. He's just trying to, he's, com he's coming down out of this rage and he's just just doesn't realize. I mean, he took him a second to even realize Naomi was there, to even kind of process that she was talking. And then he looked at her and just kind of snapped out of it. And it was just super well done. Just the seeing her face and the distress on her face, I think, is what finally snapped him out of it. Not to mention his crazy eyes. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I think it was incredibly well done. I, I already thought Amos West Chatham yeah. was one of the stronger actors in the group, but he just reinforced that with that. I, I just felt his intensity both his rage and his regret when he when he realized both that he had done something wrong and that Naomi was disappointed in him because I think that's something that gets him is, is Naomi's obviously he cares what Naomi thinks yeah I think he wasn't thinking about the consequences of doing this he just did neither it. was Miller <laughs> yeah neither of them that's true and Amos really probably thought he was being very reasonable and honest when he approached him here and he was kind of but it was also really harsh to say that to Miller, and especially when Miller thinks that they're wrong to have stayed, and because he doesn't value his own life. That's right. And when watching it, we watch it with quite a few show-only viewers, and we had a bit of a debate afterwards about this that I thought was interesting, about how much of these decisions were idiocy versus craziness, and I think it's really just you know, the lack of the ability to foresee personal consequences or the lack of the ability to even care about what they could be, which often is the case in people who lack empathy and are almost sociopathic, which Amos has shades of. I think he still is on the line. Also, he came from an environment in a tough street environment and gangs and drugs and... As did Miller. With Yeah, that's true. Where violent, you don't have time to sit and reason. If you take, if you're slow if you're too slow on the trigger you know it can mean your life and that's why someone like amos is that's like you said he thought he was being reasonable because in the environment he comes from you wouldn't he wouldn't have even given him offered, that explanation yeah he yeah. wouldn't have even offered stuck as he would not, there would be no effort to at to reconciliation at all so yeah but the resolution of it all was really genius and it was something that wasn't a good ex or is a good example of something that wasn't done in the books. There was maybe a missed opportunity. I think the authors kind of caught themselves and were like, hey, you know what? We didn't really have Miller and Naomi really bond over their common Belter heritage. And that is what Naomi did to get through to Miller to keep things, the tension between him and Amos from becoming an ongoing problem. It was super well done. And Thomas Jane, the way he like looked at Amos while telling the story while keeping his smile 
was yeah. just really great. It kind of reminded me of how you would approach an animal, honestly. Like, exactly like how you would keep eye contact with them and not show that you're scared or uneasy. Yeah, it's kind of like he's sort of communicating with his body language. All right, I'm going to try. I'm trying. You know, I'm going to do this. It's hard for me, but, you know... Thomas, I think I can do it. <laughs> Thomas Jane is really a great actor. I mean, in the scene with him and Naomi, the two of them together, you know, they and it's also part of it is the writing and, and the choice to how they clothe him. But for instance, they have him like shirtless and he's all hairy and bedraggled. Yeah, he and looks all, yeah. And it just shows his, and he, even when he puts his shirt on, he doesn't button it. You know, it yeah. just shows his disregard. <laughs> yeah, for, for himself <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at the top really. of the list. <laughs> 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 Fandomedia.reviews. Naomi, on the other hand, is usually always thinking about the big picture, it seems like. She's being very practical. In the show, we see her thinking about how to restock their MCRN ship, which is, yeah, going to be hard for them to do, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how they their roles kind of change depending on who they're faced with. Naomi plays Peacemaker in the group. on the In the crew, she plays Peacemaker. But when they get in front of Fred Johnson, she is tearing into him as much as anyone, perhaps the exception of Miller, who a great doesn't, point. doesn't know who Johnson really is even. And Naomi, of course, as a belter, cares, you know, has more, more emotion about what Fred Johnson's up to, you know, because yeah, he's representing her people. Exactly. Yeah. And she's also, as we know from the book, she's also got more experience with the OPA and is actually worried about what they could do here. And she, which, and one of the things we see about the OPA is how factionalized they are and how they are not united. So given that, Naomi is used to that kind of factionalism. And so the, her building bridges between Amos and Miller is probably something she has practice with. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're patching up different factions of the OPA. I mean, Fred Johnson points it out. He's like, they think we're weak and we have, there's thousands of tribes of us scattered throughout the belt. We can never unite. And yeah, uh, yeah. He could be Batman. <laughs> That's right. He could be. Fred Johnson would be a good Batman. But, if they ever cast a black Batman, they should definitely do Chad Coleman. Yeah. Fred Johnson, <laughs> by the way, he like, looks like a pretty big guy normally, but he looked so, so tiny next to that black sky OPA guy. Yeah, that dude, that guy was intimidating with his he had the the crazy accent and the, the, the hugeness and of course that was the man on screen when uh of Rosala was saying that it was black sky who who targeted her and that was his face on right there they managed to hack a un drone somehow yeah how did they do that one kind of mysterious character in this episode at first was Fred Johnson's second-in-command, that woman. That's actually Drummer from the book. She doesn't show up in the books until Nemesis Games, until book five, so you should know who she is. She didn't really make an impression with me, to be honest. I couldn't really remember a lot about her, so I looked her up in the book. I did a Control-F for a drummer, because she doesn't even have a wiki page yet. <laughs> but it's really actually very good casting for this this character who was very funny in the show actually she is described as a thin-faced woman with a crisp accent who's often calm and collected and she's quote sharp and aware and businesslike mm. and i think they nailed it yeah she certainly was businesslike i love that snarky <laughs> line she makes to fred about him killing mm -hmm. he says i thought he was done killing he's like mm -hmm. what about the black sky <laughs> 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 Which shows that she's sharp. That she's sharp. And um, in AfterBuzz TV's recap, Cass Anvar was on it, and he said that Drummer is going to have a great arc this season. Oh, so cool. look forward to more of her. Very good. Very good. 
As far as Fred Johnson goes, we, it's good to see him stepping forward a bit. You know, he's, again, I loved him being called a chair jockey. And, <laughs> of course, Miller had no idea. Again, no, no idea he was talking to. And it was good to see him get into action again. And, well, not again. We didn't actually see him in action before. But, you know, we know that that's in his past. One thing I'm wondering about is a difference between book and show here. In the books... Fred gets a hold of the, the last sample of the proto-molecule. Mm-hmm. Now, here in the show, they're st- stashed out in space. Now, I wonder if that's just a... For now. For now, Fred's still going to wind up with it later? Yeah. I'm guessing yes. I'm guessing I, he's still going to wind so, up with it I think so, yes. But I... Yeah, I feel like they the way that things go in the book with the proto-molecule, it's possible for it to still happen with it stashed out there, I guess. Definitely. I uh, wonder what's how they're going to go back to it, or maybe someone's just going to find it after all. I don't know. But that doesn't <laughs> seem... That seems like that would be a little cheap. I also wonder in the show how long Fred Johnson is going to be in the show. I mean, we know when he dies in the books. Yeah. But I could easily see it happening at a different point in the show, for instance. Just a thing that I've wondered about. Yeah, just because of actor contracts and things like that. Who knows? Yeah, the way they want to do some things differently. I have a feeling they'll keep him for a while. Yeah, mainly just because he dips out for a while and they have to keep him involved. But they could just show what's going on when... Just like they invented stuff for the other characters, they could invent stuff for him. I don't really see him going off screen for a long time. They made him younger, too. I mean, he's older in the books. Like a a lot of characters, they've made them younger. (laughs) Because, especially because they have to age with the show. And I think I saw on Reddit that people were complaining about Stephen Strait's age for Holden. And he said that, no, actually, Stephen Strait was maybe like a year younger than Holden in the books at the beginning of Leviathan Wakes. Mm. Because he's got to age with him. By the time we get to, you know, Babylon's Ashes and he's meant to be a little more grizzled, he, the actor, well, maybe the actor won't be because Hollywood... He might be a little older looking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of our new favorite characters, who isn't actually a new character, is Mr. Bonus Time himself, Diogo, <laughs> Invincible Me. He is just so funny and a really good actor. I, he just looked so genuinely happy and into the idea of rocketing towards probable death. Yeah, and it's neat to see, in case... Anyone didn't remember, he was the one pushed out of the airlock by his uncle shortly before his uncle went suicide bomber, you know, kamikaze pilot. And Diogo was picked up and rescued because he was in a shipping lane. And he was also the one stealing water from the sewers. The aqua. Te aqua. That's (laughs) where that line came from. And uh, Miller let him go, which, funny, that karma worked out for him (laughs) (laughs) and so we're excited to see more of diogo as the season goes on because obviously he did not die there yeah now on the other side of things on the other side of the passionate funny interesting diogo we have the chilling sociopath anthony dresden who is the head of or one of the vps at protogen which is a joint mars Earth Corporation. He's a big, pretty big difference from his book character. In the yeah. book character, he is tall and handsome and, and charismatic. Like a, very charismatic. This guy is convincing, but he's not particularly charismatic. He's more of like got that mad scientist yeah. vibe. Yeah, I think so. Like honestly, when I was watching it, I didn't really think that Fred and Holden were going to be convinced by this person. I, I didn't believe it. But after the fact, I was talking to again one of our show only friends, and. They said that was one of their favorite scenes because they believed Dresden and they thought he was right and then he just gets shot. And so they were all kind of disappointed ultimately because he got shot. And so it made me feel better about the casting, I guess, that he convinced some people. 
Well, there's a couple of things to talk about with with regards to this scene. First of all, that's a, a good point to raise. I think that it's interesting to note that he is convincing in that way, like you say, to people watching. And I think that is getting at the heart of it. He His argument has a lot of holes in it. It's just very convincing from the way it's been. It's a very... There's a lot of social commentary here. It's a, it's all about this thing. They found this extrasolar life form, and he spins it into the story about how it's been fired at them, like it's yeah. some sort of weapon, like it was meant to destroy them. First of all, if it was, it's a pretty weak attempt. Second of all, if it, we find out later that it was fired at the solar system literally two billion years ago before there was life on Earth, so it wasn't a weapon in that sense. And again... He's, his whole, one of his arguments is that we'll be defenseless if we don't work with this thing and that we have to do this or else it's like, really? Really you think that you'd have a chance against some sort of <laughs> creature or race that built this thing? Really? I mean, they're way, 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 way beyond you. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's what Miller realized. Miller can't explain it like that. Miller wouldn't be able to talk Johnson and... Holden and anyone else out of that argument. He knows Dresden is more convincing than he is. Dresden's way smarter than Holden, uh, than Miller. So that's Miller's only hope. He's like, look, I can see what's happening. You guys are being convinced by the sociopath. I'm never going to get a chance to stop this. And no one else may stop this. So this is the only thing I can do is shoot this guy in the head. It's his cop street smarts coming out. He's, he recognizes the sociopath, the lies, without being able to pinpoint exactly what the lies are. And he's like, well, mm -hmm. I'm putting a stop to this now. I think it's pretty clever. I think it's neat. I mean, it's the classic scenario with Dr. Mengele. If you yeah. have him in the room convincing people, you shoot him in the head. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, you do. It, 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 it is. It's a very interesting, like deep philosophical question you know uh, of course it, it touches on our deepest biases as well about being against violence you know nobody wants to start off by shooting someone in the head like you're really if that's your default position your starting position if your starting position is this guy deserves to die you've got a lot to prove that's a very hard claim to prove but i think this is one of those times yeah and miller's willing to fall on his i guess gun yeah, fall on his gun. Yeah, he's willing to. He, he was in. The, he was kind of in the right place at the right time. A man who didn't have enough, for, a lot of regard for himself and for the consequences, was willing to kind of, like you say, fall on his gun, fall yeah. on his sword. And of course, there's a slight element of revenge there for Miller as oh, well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, more than slight. Yeah, but still, it's it really interesting how how horrified Holden and and uh, Johnson were. Johnson, a man with great military experience, flinched at the second. And third bullet shot. I mean, he was know. brutal shooting him again, but I, I also appreciated that he was like, no, let's make sure he's dead. <laughs> Fandomedia.reviews. So that was Thoth Station, which, of course, is in a reference to a lot of Egyptian names. Of course, we have the Anubis, the Anubis. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> of course, at Thoth, we saw some references, some, some slightly small, to, of course, the Battle of Abyss novella. Mm. That's right, and it's something that maybe is a little confusing, is the, the way the scientists react to being disconnected. Yeah. And that is because they have all agreed to have procedures done on their brains. I, I believe Dresden has the same thing done to him, but it's uh, maybe a different version of the same modification. But they basically are 
they remove all socio-ethical uh, instincts so that you can focus only on bottom lines. It's a very precise brain modification. It basically turns them into human computers, in a sense. And these people agreed to this. They yeah. agreed to to have these modifications under their brain so they could work with this technology. Yeah, what, I mean, if I was a scientist, there's a strong chance that I might do it too, just because you're going to feel awful that you're doing this to people. You can't not feel guilty about that. But if you make the decision, you put your foot down, you're going to get involved with this. It's better just to not feel that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's just such a, it's a bizarre thing to think about. What a weird conundrum that would be for someone who is genuinely in love with science and research to be like hey you can work on a two billion year old proto molecule thing <laughs> you know you can be one of the first people to ever work on an extrasolar life form and that has that is extremely advanced and has these incredible uh aspects to it but <laughs> you have to become a sociopath and give up a part of your brain forever and never like feel love again <laughs> okay i'll do that you know uh, you can uh, see why most people would turn that down yeah, but you people. can see why scientists are someone crazy. <laughs> would and you know out of all the people someone yeah. would accept and... no definitely I mean, especially people who've devoted themselves to the pursuit of knowledge and this is the most amazing knowledge we could ever imagine some of them might feel like Aversala's argument to Souther was like, look, if you're not involved, you're not going to be able to help. Of course, that argument falls flat when you're agreeing to have your <laughs> ethics removed from your brain. Because <laughs> that whole argument, you won't be able to even recall that. You're like, what, was I, what did I care about that for? <laughs> so what was kind of set up here isn't how it played out. We were, we know, of course, from the books and, you know, maybe we, it could have been different. You never know when they make some changes. But it made it look like the Martians were going to go into action and they didn't. And that was I mean, kind of at the last minute, the missiles were fired. They destroyed, decided to destroy Phoebe instead of taking it. And it was a bit of a fake out. Yeah, because, of course, we didn't see what Bobby was up to prior to the events of Caliban's War. So it was possible. Yeah. So we didn't know it was a kind of an open question going into the episode. And it's interesting what they did with it. And they showed one major difference from her show to book character is that she seems to be a lot more aggressive and angry at Earth. And maybe there's more of that in general among the Martians. Yeah, yeah, there might well be, although certainly her commander was a little bit more cool-headed. Very much so. It's like the, the older Martians are smarter. Like, <laughs> you know, it seems like they, they understand the dangers more than the youngsters do. But I, I really, I'm, I love Bobby Draper, just a preface. For anyone, this is our first episode, I should tell you that she's my favorite character. Well, favorite major character. I also like some characters in Cibola Burn, but that's besides the point. But... I really loved the hype speech that they gave her for MMC when they... Yeah, it works so well as a trailer, too. Yeah, it works well for, for that as well, for hyping up the fans. But I really liked the actual words of it, where who is going to feast on Earth's sky and drink their rivers dry, Yeah, which is perfectly Martian. Yeah, it's, just show, it's that whole attitude of Marsh, Martians look at Earthers as people who have everything and waste it and so they're gonna feast on the air on the yeah. very air <laughs> which is great and so in casting a character like bobby who i i think is a fan favorite based on the online reception to her i just it seems like she's very very popular she's popular with me at the very least she's not a fan favorite for me <laughs> but is that you know people aren't going to be happy all the time and a lot of people thought that frankie adams wasn't big enough but she's six foot tall, and when she's wearing the suit with her boots, she's about 6'2 or 6'3, so she's pretty huge, actually. 
So I, as we mentioned earlier, it's like casting a unicorn. So I respect people who wanted an even bulkier Bobby Draper, but I, I think that's awfully nitpicky. <laughs> yeah, it's really, those kind of complaints really just, I tend to just ignore them because I think they're so frivolous, but they are out there. Yeah. Another interesting thing that I wanted to point out that I heard in one of the podcasts that I listened to uh, was that Ty and Daniel said that Bobby is defined by her competence and confidence. And I think that's a great way of putting it and a great way of showing why she can be so likable and such a badass. Yeah. And I think it was really interesting that they seem to have added some additional backstory, not just in other words, they didn't just make her more angry with Earth. They gave reasons for it. It was this this whole situation with the early politics of Earth and Mars before they became independent from each other politically. It revolves around the issue of the Epstein drive, which was a highly advanced spaceflight engine that enabled them to go far, much farther out into the solar system than anyone had. Mars discovered it first. Thus, they had a technological advantage that Earth didn't have. And eventually what happened was after some saber rattling, after <laughs> nearly going to war, the deal was Earth will give Mars its independence in exchange for this technology. That way they don't have to go to war. However, we could not find any specific references to terraforming being pushed back, let alone 50 years and 50 more. But it really makes sense that if Mars had to put effort into their military because of this, that yeah, it would set back terraforming. And that is a bit of social commentary. It goes to show that all of their efforts were going into making their world a better place. And because of greed and politics, all of that good effort was put into building weapons. Yeah. That could easily destroy both planets. As that's a lot of social commentary that goes beyond party politics there. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that they've foreshadowed a ton of times in the books, they've been foreshadowing it in the show, is of course the idea of rocks falling on Earth, which the idea of just the littlest thing like that could destroy everything is of course, you know, allegory for nuclear warfare and warfare war, in general, yeah, Cold yeah. War. And we see that with Abyssarala in season one, of course, and that scene that they added with her laying on the roof where she is scared of meteors. And yep. I thought that was a beautiful scene. And without being too on the nose, that this is what's going to happen here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> they had the ability to do all of these foreshadowing type of Abyssarala scenes because she wasn't in Leviathan Wakes and they added her in season one. And now this is the case for Bobby Draper as well, that they get to add these things that she's doing and incorporate all of this foreshadowing for what's going to happen to her to come. I mean, it's really, really well done. Things like her seeing the proto-molecule there. Yeah. And we know she's going to see the proto-soldier. Yeah. And her being worried about uh, the terraforming project. And, of course, later on, Mars is going to fall apart. And it's not going to work out, and she's going to be devastated about that. Yep, there will be no terraforming project. And, <laughs> as we mentioned already, her troops are going to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But at least she'll get to work for Avrasala, probably. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> and make friends with Amos and Alex and everybody. <laughs> yeah, there's that. She has some good things to look forward to, She'll too. get a new crew. <laughs> and, of course, they've done some other things like that in Season 1 that we'll touch on right here since this is the first episode, Recovering of the Expanse, like Alex having a child 
I actually, and this is interesting, I thought that that was an addition for the show originally when they show his child. And I only caught after reading the books that there's a line in the books where Avasarala talks about that he has a secret love child that he, he may or about, he right? may or may not know about. She's <laughs> not. They leave it open. That's so, right. So he does have a child. It's obviously or maybe is going to play out differently than we see in the books. But I think that's one really great example. The other thing is that Alex cares a lot about family and the crew. And that plays out in this very episode where... And he wears a fake belly. <laughs> yes, that is another thing that is very important to mention. <laughs> the most important of all. Most important. He has a, the actor is wearing a prosthetic belly. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't go on the soy sauce and ice cream diet that some actors do to gain weight. He just wore a prosthetic. <laughs> Sounds like a better plan to me. We see... A little bit of Amos's backstory, too, in season one. Yeah, that he mentions the churn, even. Yeah, he mentions the churn. We see him talking to that male prostitute. And, of course, Alex asks him, what are you, their union rep? <laughs> and, of course, we see the a slight change is the Rasanante backstory that we can presume that his surrogate mother was the Rasanante that he's talking about, the workhorse. And I, it's still not clear to me if that's a joke from him. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I imagine we'll find out eventually, though. And another change from the books is they handled Nami's backstory a little bit better. A uh, lot, setting I think. It up, yeah, maybe a lot better. They set it up a lot more rather than sort of revealing it later. It's more... There's more uh, clues to make it... It'll, it may, it'll make more sense later in the show. This is the thing I want to ask any of you listeners... Leave us a comment if you can think of any moments in the books that give clues towards Naomi being OPA earlier than, um, I think it's Abaddon's Gate, when the first clue that I could find was that when she decides to forgive Clarissa Mao for her actions, that it indicates that she was involved in something awful in her past because she has to believe that forgiveness is possible. But I couldn't actually find anything earlier than that up until we actually find out in Nemesis Games. Yeah, yeah. So just leave us a comment. I'm, I'm very interested to know. And of course, in the show, we get some really overt references from the Martian interrogation where they actually say it to her saying that she never got to say goodbye, which is a reference to her son, and asking Fred Johnson for a future favor, finding someone, which again is a reference to her son, who she wants to find. Mm, yep, you know she's not looking for Marco. <laughs> yeah, who would? <laughs> Except to punch him. Marco's a good example of someone that should have just been shot in the head before yeah. he could convince anyone of anything. I'll say, I don't know at what point they're gonna introduce Naomi's son and how old she's supposed to have been in the show when she had him. I wonder those sort of things. By the time we get to that point, she might be significantly older that it will make sense for her to have a teen son. But I can't imagine him being even close to that yet. Speaking of Naomi, one idea that she had there that I couldn't find in the books at all, I also did a search for vaccine because it seemed like a pretty easy thing to look up. And I, don't, I didn't see it mentioned anywhere. Naomi mentions that maybe we can create a vaccine for these people, and that's actually a really reasonable idea. They don't know what the protomolecule is. They don't know if it's possible, but it should at least be looked into or mentioned as an idea, and I think it really shows a lot about Naomi's practicality. Mm -hmm. It looks like an infectious disease, right? I mean, yeah. it looks like it. it people are, it crawls all over you and makes you vomit. I mean, it looks like a disease. So I do agree. I totally agree. That's a very reasonable course of action or a very reasonable thing for her to think of. 
and say, yeah, we can't destroy this. It might be the cure. We might be destroying the cure. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a great idea and a great way to show why they wouldn't destroy it right then. Thinking, uh, thinking like an engineer, too. <laughs> Good point, yes. <clears throat> I think one of the greatest references the show has had so far was in that Naomi Holden scene when... Holden says to Naomi, you like space gladiator movies? That's actually, like, word for word, except for the space, of course, a line from Airplane when they say, you like gladiator movies, Jimmy? <laughs> yep. Anything that references Airplane is, gets bonus points from me. Another cool little reference that I didn't get and I had to read on Reddit was that the FedEx boxes themselves are an Easter egg. It's not just, oh, haha, FedEx still exists. Alcon Entertainment... What, which is the production company behind The Expanse, was partially funded by the FedEx CEO, Fred Smith. They should have called it FredX. <laughs> Visual elements. In general, you can tell that they have a bigger budget, as, of course, they most successful shows do get bigger budgets when they get a second season, if they get a second season or a third or fourth. <laughs> and, of course, for a sci-fi show, they're going to naturally put some of that extra budget into cool space battles, cool sci-fi type effects, things like that. So far, so good, I'd say. Yeah, we got little things like the added Mars shot in the credits. We got those Martian suits, which cost them a pretty penny to... They actually, I mean, those are real suits that they have to wear. Yeah. And they had to have them made so that the actors can actually act in them and move around and not die. Yeah, and there were a lot of different looks they gave us inside the station, inside different ships. There were a lot of cool little things on screens behind, like Jules Pierre Mao's name yeah. appeared as owner of the corporation uh, on the on one back screen. And in, for example, in the war room, there's a lot, a, lots of little details. If you people playing with their little handheld technologies and all their all the different on screen things, it's worth pausing. Sometimes to take a look at what's on those things because they don't they don't stint on those details. No, they do not. I think one of the best shots that was just like a background shot was the pan from Phoebe Station down to the Eros Quarantine, which was I mean it was very overt. It was yeah. very clear that they're they're missing the point of this and that this is distracting them, but it was still well done. And the really neat effects of the lighting of the Rocinante, especially during battle. Yeah, I love that rainbow colors, which it also a little cracked me up because I was thinking that there needs to be a rave on the Rocinante <laughs> sometime. And the trailers left by those rail guns are really neat. They're just visually cool. Just uh, it's like the little sparkly trailer effect. It's I just like that. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that it really adds a lot, but it's just cool. <laughs> I will mention here that the space battle was great, and I mean they always are. It definitely is one of the scenes that was different from the books. It doesn't matter to me that's different from the books but it was different yeah definitely i think there were two stealth ships exactly yeah there are two stealth ships it's an easy way to <laughs> easy way to save some budget yeah they didn't hide by the station there there's a few other differences but i, I think those are negligible they don't matter. yeah that's you, i can always understand when they reduce the complexity of <laughs> a book battle into a tv battle or movie battle because that is where so much of the money goes yeah. i think some of my favorite visual elements of this episode were some of the filmmaking techniques that they used, um, three in particular that I'd like to highlight. One was the mirror shot of Naomi, where you see her and she's talking to Miller there. And I think that's always a well done shot to use in any any TV show or movie where you can see both characters' reactions at the same time in an interesting way. And they did it well there. I al it almost looked like they like did VFX to put just a straight recording of her into the mirror with how clear she looked in the mirror, honestly. Yeah, maybe. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good call. I bet, I bet you're right. Um, and then another one was, it was just 
minor was just when they do those close shots as if they're inside their helmet, like they did for Amos at the very beginning of episode one. I love those like macro shots. I just think they're really gorgeous. Audio elements. The spacesuit gives us perspective that we don't normally have that is an interesting audio trick, which is that you can hear the breathing as if you're inside the spacesuit. That is something that kind of puts you in the character's shoes in a way that would never happen outside of sci-fi or outside of space. Heavy breathing is a really strong element of tension. And the spacesuit allows them to naturally magnify that without it seeming uh, out of place. Also, in general, I wouldn't say The Expanse is a lot with music, necessarily. The theme's music is great. I would say that they don't do a lot with music, but they do have a lot of music in the background that does a lot to expand the world. That's exactly what I was going to say. They've done a number of audio element type things to make the setting very believable and futuristic in a, in a way that feels right. And like I was trying to think of what sci-fi out there really had just people going out dancing and having music. And like part of it is that I like that style of music. I like electronic music and I especially like that fusion style. So I just like it. But it also feels very believable that that is where the music has gotten to at this point, that that's the kind of thing that they would be playing, these, these eclectic electronic styles. And it's very realistic as compared to most sci-fi TV, which is very sterilized. You yeah, see, it is. Because they're all, they're very presented, they're presented very militarily. You know, like Star Star Trek, for example. They're a military ship. You're not going to have a bunch of people getting crazy dancing around and drinking, you know. They they go on their holodeck and have their very scripted entertainment. It's, yeah. it's, it's it fits that setting, but it doesn't feel very realistic and it's, it's hard to relate to as a person in 2017. Yeah. This feels like what it would be a couple hundred years in the future. It seems realistic. It seems like, and you can see how it would have gotten that way, how a culture could have evolved to get to that point. And that even plays into like the hand terminals that they have, which are very much like our smartphones that we have everywhere and can check information about. Yeah, it's really, really well thought out. Basically, an important point to make about The Expanse in general is the origin of it was a role-playing campaign that was only open to other writers. And one of the things that comes from building a world, from world building, is think, looking at every aspect of it and trying to fit the details in in a way that's believable. And you can tell that this world has had a lot of effort put into those small details. And it, it really, I really appreciate that. I mean, yeah, it was over many, many years that they were just kind of building their files on what this world was before they actually got down to writing it. Yeah. A good example is the language. Belter language is one of the omnipresent pieces of work they put into this that is a something that you notice uh, is an, uh, something that we would we put into the audio element category because it's just a well-done thing, but it is, you know, language. It's a different way of speaking, and you can't not notice that. And of course, they have an actual linguist for the show that does the show's version of Belter Creole, Specifically because they're not linguists, obviously. They, you got to hire someone to, to do that. Yeah. And in their use of that language, it's really well done because, one, they use it to affect the audience. That you feel shut out when two characters are talking in Belter and you don't know what they're saying. They don't subtitle it for you so you know what they're saying. And they also use it so that other characters feel shut out of a conversation because they don't understand Belter. We see that, of course, most clearly in season one, but Definitely. We'll, we still see it here. Yeah, even in some of the earlier episodes, they go ahead and show us the translations on screen. There's a little less of that now. I don't even know if they did it at all in this no, episode. No, they don't do it. Unless someone like repeats it for their own clarity's sake in, in the conversation. No, they don't coddle us like that. 
And then you can tell when someone says Sasuke, you know, they mean like, you know what they mean by that. Yeah. You know? And, and this doesn't just extend to the Belters. Martian, the Martians have their own language, but it's that they have different dialects as well. It's not just all the Martians have the same accent. There's different accents yeah, in different parts of Mars. Exactly. They're not a monolith. And I think it's a common misconception that all Martians speak with this Texan twang. But it actually is just the Mariner Valley. And even in the books, Bobby teases Alex about his accent at one point. So <laughs> I think it makes a lot of sense that, yeah, they have different accents. And I like that they did the Kiwi accent for Bobby. And they had some British and some hardly accented at all and yeah there's a lot of different versions of of a lot of these things and both with the martian voices and with the belter voices lots of variations lots of variety which is how it should be and that makes it all feel well it just makes it feel very well made and you know i see a lot of people that complain actually about the accents being so different or about the martian accents like that and i think partially because they had this conception of them being so unified so I can kind of understand that you have this conception that you're picturing all these Martians with Texan accents, but I like the diversity. Yeah, I think it's better that way. It wouldn't it wouldn't make sense for them to all speak the same way. That would not also, make sense. <laughs> I have to say, as much as I think Frankie Adams' New Zealander accent is hard to understand, especially when she's in her suit, you really need the subtitles. I love a New Zealand and an Australian <laughs> accent. I really do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One thing that we missed originally, because our DVR cut off the beginning of it when we rewatch it digitally, was that they do a really cool thing in the previously on, which is that they have it narrated by one of the characters. So at the beginning of episode one, Miller tells the story of what happened. And, you know, and it shows what happened visually, but he's narrating it. And I think that's just a really cool choice. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> Final thoughts. So overall, I'd say we were very excited to talk about The Expanse. We were very excited for the season to debut, and we were not disappointed. Definitely, I was not disappointed. I'd say, you know, like, maybe I had a couple of tiny things that niggled at me. The yeah. tiniest of things, but they really didn't bother me that much. And there were so many things that I, you know, I was hyped for, and I had confidence in them, but they did not disappoint. Things like Bobby Draper, for instance, which... You know, that's a delicate character to get right, I think. And I think they nailed it. And I loved every Bobby scene, except for one, which was her arm wrestling her suit. Yeah, I didn't like that scene either. I thought it was kind of pointless. We already knew she was a badass. We already knew. It just didn't add anything. It just, all it yeah. does is make her suit seem worse. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Her acting was really good in that scene, I thought. I liked it a lot. She really seemed very intense and into it. So it was good overall. But I, I still wish it wasn't there. What were your favorite moments? My favorite moments were Alex's monologue at the bar. Just, I just, I, I thought it was a good complex moment with uh, adding a lot of emotional depth for Alex, and I felt it. And it was funny. Yeah, it was a good balance of funny and uh, harsh, or sad and funny. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, Diogo. It was also kind of sad and funny. Yeah, it was, you're right. It <laughs> a also lot less was. sad though. Yeah, a lot less sad. It's just sad for a second when you think he's dead. Yeah, but <laughs> like, I was—I wasn't even thinking of that. I was thinking sad the fact that like his uncle killed himself, yeah. suicided. And his he, life has been hard. Yeah, his life has been hard. That—that that part. What about you? My favorites. I think I really love Miller's off-the-cuff nicknames for people. Calling Fred OPA chair jockey was hilarious. Calling Amos no neck. No was neck. Really funny. I'm gonna use that all the time. <laughs> and as I also pointed out, my favorite mini arc was Naomi's. Not just Naomi, but the whole arc of Miller and Amos having their throwdown and then the resolution of it. I think both the way the conflict was handled and the resolution were just super well done, both in so the writing. So your plot line. Yeah, the writing and the acting were just... 
I mean, I felt it. I really was like Amos's look and everything. I really, I just got that feeling in my stomach. Not being able to describe exactly what that feeling was, but it was something. <laughs> Fandomedia.reviews. Well, that's all for today, folks. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us get noticed. That is something that any new podcast needs a lot of. You'd be surprised how much that matters. Until next time, I'm Fantony Dresden. I'm Juliet Fandromeda Mao, and this is The Expanse. <laughs>